description of what John reveals to the church by the Holy Ghost about the last night that the disciples spent with Jesus before he was betrayed. You may remember in chapter 14, Jesus begins to say that he's going to depart from and go to the Father. And, uh, and that seems to change the mood of the, the whole time together, what we know of as the Last Supper. And they're concerned, the disciples are concerned because he said he's going away. He's previously told them, according to the scripture, that um, uh, he's plainly taught them that he's going to be killed, crucified, and uh, raised again the third day. But apparently that didn't uh, soak in with the disciples because they're, they're all upset because Jesus said that he's going away. So I'm going to start here in John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you. That means helpful or better. It's expedient. It's better for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Skip down with me to verse 13. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. You remember in my, uh, Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus uh, came to Caesarea Philippi. It's a, a place where there were uh, kind of a mini mall of temples and different idols that people worshipped and so forth. There was a, a, a gathering place where people would come and worship one or more gods, uh, false idols and, and so forth. And Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Well, the, uh, one of them spoke up and said, well, some people say you're Elijah. Other people say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus turned around on them. He said, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my father, which is in heaven. Let me pause there long enough for you to think about what he's saying. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. That means they didn't conclude that Jesus was the Messiah because of the miracles, because of the things that they did, because of the physical manifestations of power that Jesus performed in the miracles that he worked. He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father, which is in heaven. And then he goes on and says, And thou shalt be called Peter, which means a rock or a little rock. But he said, Upon this rock, talking about the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God that came to the earth to be our Savior. He said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, we know that he builds the church by the work of the Holy Ghost. You may also remember in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Why don't we look at that one? Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus told them, told the disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until they be endued with power from on high. Now, these guys are already born again. They've seen Jesus. They've confessed him as Lord. And so if the Bible means anything, if, Acts, if uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 mean what it says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. They've already done that. They've seen him. They've talked to him. They've eaten with him. 
They recognize that he is the Messiah. They recognize that he's the Lord. It changes their behavior. John chapter 20 tells us about when Jesus appeared to them for the first time after he was raised from the dead. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Ghost. This is the same bunch that he says, now wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So there must be two works of the Holy Ghost, one in salvation and one in service, or to do the works of Jesus. Luke's account says that after that was, uh, after they appeared to him, verse 52, Luke 24, verse 52 says they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were daily in the temple openly praising God. Well, something's changed. These guys in John chapter 20 are hiding behind closed doors for fear of the Jews, it says. But after Jesus appears to them, after they realize that he's risen from the dead, after they call him Lord and Savior, now they return to Jerusalem and they're out in the open. And it says they were filled with joy. Well, joy is a work of the, of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law. So they're exhibiting signs of the fruit of the Spirit, which only come unto us after salvation. And yet Jesus says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now he's already commissioned them. He's already told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He's giving them, giving, he has given them instructions, what we call the Great Commission. But he tells them to wait for power. I like the way John Osteen used to say it. He said, don't even think about having church without the Holy Ghost. The thing I'm trying to get to, folks, and I've been, uh, well, the Lord's had me going about this, on this for about uh, two weeks. And I, I have to tell you, I'm amazed that Jesus would put such confidence in the disciples because he knew they would receive the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 tells us about the Holy Ghost being poured out. I want to read some of this to you. If you want to read with me, that's fine. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice nobody was left out. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded. Because that every man heard them speak in his own language. This is a situation where there was no need for interpretation of tongues because the, guy, the 120 are each speaking different languages. And the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya around Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, 
we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, you men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Now folks, this always tickles me whenever I read this. Peter's saying the way you know they're not drunk is because it's too early. Now if it's later in the day, maybe so, I don't know. I'm not sure there's anything implied there, but he says, these men are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now he refers to Joel's prophecy. And Joel's prophecy and the things that are listed here in Acts chapter 2 don't concern just one event. It does not concern or pertain to the day of Pentecost alone. It does pertain to that, but not only. It doesn't pertain to just the things that were happening on that day that they've witnessed. It carries all through the church age, and some of these things culminate at the end of the seven-year period of tribulation. But let me ask you this. What does Peter know about Joel? Now, they would know what everybody knows, and that is Joel was a prophet. They might have a little bit of information about what Joel prophesied. But what I want you to see is the first demonstration of power that comes upon them to be witnesses in Jerusalem is the power to speak or preach. We always think of the power of God as being healing and miracles and things like that, and thank God that's part of it. But Peter is impressed by the Holy Ghost, motivated and used, influenced by the Holy Ghost, talk about things that he would have no way to really know about. You remember in Acts chapter 3 when it talks about he and John getting the guy at the beautiful gate of the temple, the cripple at the beautiful gate of the temple healed. They go before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And the one thing the high priest took notice of, both of them, Peter and John, is that they were ignorant and unlearned men. Well, if they're ignorant and unlearned men, what does he know about Joel? I dare say that it would be unlikely to be generous that Peter's got Joel's prophecy memorized and just waiting for the chance to use it. Let me keep reading here. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. 
For David spaketh concerning him, I foresaw the, foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Is, people conver- is Peter conversing in all the things that David said? If he was a part of the, the priesthood, he would be. But there was no way for him as an ignorant and unlearned man, meaning an uneducated man in the scriptures. How would he know? Therefore did my heart rejoice. He's going on with what David said. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad and moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, that ends what uh, David prophesied. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. Now he's going to talk some more about David and the way David operated. That he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in hell neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, and has shed forth this which you see, you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified both Lord and Christ. That's a little different than being gathered up behind closed doors just a month before. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter preaches there's two works of the Holy Ghost too. The work of the Holy Ghost in salvation, or what he calls here the remission of sins, and also the outpouring of the Spirit. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day, one day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. The confidence that Jesus had of the work of the Holy Ghost that would take place in these men is staggering to me. Jesus never gave them outlines or sermons to preach. Jesus did his work, died on the cross, paid the penalty and the price for sin and death, and was risen again, resurrected. Thank God he was. And now he trusts men that he spent three years teaching, encouraging, revealing things to, and ultimately having to upbraid them for their hardness of heart and their unbelief. If he was looking for guys that he could have confidence in in the flesh, he did a bad job of picking 12. 
Because even when Jesus was raised from the dead and he appeared to them, some of them didn't believe it. And he questioned them. The Bible uses the word upbraided. He reprimanded them, rebuked them. Saying, why didn't you believe? I taught you these things. I told you it was going to happen. Why didn't you believe? Now, folks, I'm not trying to rag on the disciples. They may have done a better job than you and I might have experiencing these same things. It's easy for us to look at it now, understand the new birth and all the things that God intended and brought to pass. With that knowledge, if we could go back, then we'd all stand strong. But nobody could have that knowledge outside of Jesus who saw what was to be. And no matter how much he taught them, no matter how many times he told them, no matter how many times or ways he showed them what was to come, it was beyond their ability to, to accept. But here's what Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the Holy Ghost was greater than their failures. Jesus knew that the Holy Ghost was greater than their weaknesses. He knew that the power of the Holy Ghost was greater than their inadequacies or their insecurities. All the same things that you and I might say today. Well, I'd like for God to use me, but... All those things were magnified in them. And Jesus trusted the work of the Holy Ghost. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Now we've got the 12. We've got the 70. And then we've got the 120 that were gathered together in the uh, upper room. I assume that 120 must have included the 12 and the 70. But what about Paul? Paul wasn't part of the 12. He never saw Jesus in the flesh. The Bible certainly would have told us. Paul would have said so himself if he had ever seen Jesus in his earthly ministry. But he didn't. And he was ingrained and indoctrinated just like the 12 were, just in a different thing. Paul was ingrained and indoctrinated, brainwashed to think that the priesthood was the only thing that there was and the only thing that mattered. The 12 were just ignorant and unlearned men. For them, it was just hard to believe that anything that they can't see and understand from the physical realm or with their physical eye, how can that happen? In spite of Jesus doing miracle after miracle after miracle. But Paul's following the traditional way he's on the fast track in the priesthood he's of the tribe of Benjamin so he can't be high priest but he can be everything else except that he participates in the stoning of Stephen and that must have motivated him to ask for letters from the high priest and the, the, and the council of priesthood to go to Damascus and put in prison anybody that's worshiping God through Jesus there. Well, he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears to him. The light shines around about him. And he fell off the, don the donkey of the animal that he was riding. Jesus questions him. He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Paul said, who art thou, Lord? See, Paul didn't see himself as persecuting Jesus. 
If he had recognized that persecuting the church was persecuting Jesus, he never would have asked the question, who are you? But he didn't know. So Jesus identifies himself. He said, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. Well, you know the end of the story. Paul goes into the city of Damascus and he can't see because of the brightness of that light. He's not blind with blindness. He just can't see because the glory of God that shined round about him was brighter than the noonday sun. And it blinded him. Now we know what that's like if you look into the power of God behind that light, that glory that caused him to fall upon the earth. Was so bright that he was blind for three days and except God had made provision through Ananias for him to receive his sight, he might have been blinded forever. But Ananias goes as God directed him to. Lays hands on him. And says, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, whom you met in the way, sent me. Well, if he wasn't saved, you wouldn't call him brother, would you? See, Ananias recognizes from what Jesus had told him in the vision he had while he was praying. He said, the Lord, even Jesus, whom you met in the way, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. So there's two different works of the Holy Ghost in Saul's life. Salvation that took place on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him. The baptism of the Holy Ghost or the infilling of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking under the tongues when Ananias laid hands on him and prayed for him. Well, time goes by. We don't know exactly how long it went by. Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells us a little bit about his story, how that he immediately began preaching in Damascus He confounded everybody because the church had information, according to Ananias, the church had information that Paul had letters and authority to put people in jail for worshiping Jesus. But they didn't leave town. They stayed there. They didn't run. Even, they, even though they knew that their devotion to Jesus and worshiping as such might cost them prison time or even their lives. They didn't run. So Paul confounds everybody. He confounds the church. The church is, aware, uh, is wary of him because of what they know that he has authority to do there. I'm sure many of them thought that it was just a trick, trying to flush the Christians out so that he could punish them or imprison them or whatever. The Jews are confounded because they're thinking, wait a minute, this is our golden boy that we sent there to straighten things out and put people in jail. And the Bible tells us that Paul preached in Damascus and then he went to Jerusalem and the Jews in Jerusalem wanted to kill him. But their plan was found out and so they sent Paul away as far as to Tarsus. And the Bible says, then had the churches rest. That was the impact of Paul's ministry in Jerusalem. Things calmed down when he left town.
We can't rightly say that he added much to what was going on in Jerusalem, can we? Acts 13. There is much, there has passed much time between Paul's conversion and where he's commissioned or separated under the ministry or a specific ministry, I guess we should say. Paul talks about spending time in Arabia. Many scholars, and they could be right, nobody knows for sure, but many scholars believe that it was in Arabia that he had his visions and revelations of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he preached. Now, Paul was a learned man. Paul was an educated man. He had performed, according to his own testimony, all the training and the, uh, the learning required of the high priest himself. And a part of that included the memorization, not the knowledge of, but the memorization of all the laws and, and the prophets. I personally don't know how anybody could memorize that much of anything. That just boggles my mind. But that's a part of the learning and education that Paul had. So he goes to Arabia. Maybe this is the point in time that he described to the Corinthians about knowing a man in Christ over 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Such a man was caught up into the third heaven and heard things that are not lawful for, to utter. It makes it sound like God wouldn't let him tell. But that wouldn't make sense. Why would he show him if he didn't want him to reveal it to the church, to the body of Christ? It most probably means he didn't have words to describe. Now, Paul told us a lot of things about the revelation that he had. So it wasn't that he didn't have words to describe any of it. But apparently there were things that he heard and things that he saw that went beyond his ability to describe. Then the Bible says Paul went again to Jerusalem by revelation. And he says of that trip to Jerusalem that the leaders, he saw Peter, he saw James, he saw John. And Paul said they didn't add anything to him. Now that sounds a little bit egotistical. Sounds a little bit prideful. But I think what he's trying to communicate to the Galatians that he writes these things to is that there wasn't any part of the revelation of who we are in Christ that he didn't already have knowledge of. His revelation, what he called his gospel, was complete and could stand alone on its own. Have you found Acts 13 yet? I won't read the whole thing, but let's read a few verses Verse 1, it says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, such as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with, the Herod, with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Notice how verse 4 describes it. It says, so they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost departed into Seleucia and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. Now the Bible tells us that they got to a certain place, Paphos I believe it was, 
And there was a deputy of that region that gave audience to Paul. But he had an advisor that was close to him that was a Jew that tried to stop Paul from sharing the truth of the revelation he had received about Jesus with the deputy. And it became such a hindrance or a distraction that Paul, by the Holy Ghost, looked on him and commanded that he be surrounded with a mist and a darkness. It says this mist and darkness fell on him when Paul spoke it to be. And the guy, for a period of time, it wasn't sickness or disease, but for a period of time, he couldn't see and had to have somebody guide him around or lead him around by the hand. Paul goes from there and he preaches about Jesus in other places. Again, I don't want to read the whole thing, take up all our time reading. But let's skip down to about verse 40. Paul is preaching to a Jewish audience primarily. And he says, Beware therefore lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Here's what the prophet said. Behold you despisers and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days. A work which you shall in no wise believe though a man declare it unto you. I believe that was part of the prophecy of Isaiah. Verse 42 it said, And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. The Gentiles are a willing and ready audience, but not the Jews. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. It's a bigger crowd than they could draw. And they spoke against those things which were spoken of by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Why would they do that? Paul's going to tell you why they did. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light for the Gentiles, that thou should be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. I want you to notice that Paul found himself in the scripture. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah 42, verse 6. Here's what he quotes. Here's what he found, and here's what the Lord led him in some way to understand that this was his ministry. Isaiah 42, verse 6, it says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thy hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Paul found himself in the Word. Now, here's why that's significant. As much as Paul understood about the Old Testament, he didn't have anything else to go on. And here's what's amazing to me. Jesus spent three years that's captured in four different Gospels. 
But not a one of those gospels were written until the very end of Paul's life, if at all, during his life. The gospels of Mark and Luke, these are people that were part of Paul's company at least at one time. John Mark was Barnabas' nephew. He went with the two of them on the first missionary journey and things got tough and so he bailed out and went back home. Then when the second missionary journey, time for that came around, Paul and Barnabas had a falling out about whether they should take him. Barnabas, who was the encourager, wanted to give him another chance and Paul was done with him. If he turned back once, he'll turn back again. He wasn't willing to take him. And it said the dispute or the dissension between them was so sharp that Paul and Barnabas separated. Now, folks, I got to tell you, I cannot help but believe that was contrary to the will of God. God separated in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. The Holy Ghost said, and we have to assume that he said it through one of these men that are prophets that are listed in that uh, uh, list of five people, Paul and Barnabas being two of them. The word of the Lord given by the Holy Ghost was, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. But they let a dispute break them up. I don't believe that was the will of God. Paul chose, Bar uh, Paul chose Silas to go with him on the second missionary journey and Barnabas and John Mark went another or a different direction. Remember Jesus said upon the, this rock, talking about the knowledge that he's the Christ, I'll build my church. And even if, and I believe definitively that, it did, that they did, operate contrary to the will of God in that situation, somebody should have chosen to walk in love and stuck together. But even though they didn't, and even if they didn't because they got in the flesh with one another, because they certainly got in the flesh, there's no other reason that you could identify that separated the two of them. From one another I'm talking about. Even if they got in the flesh, God's work still went forth. They still got done what God wanted them to do. See, so many times in life we'll come to a place where we'll realize that we messed up, that we went the wrong direction, or failed to yield to the leading of the Holy Ghost or the direction that God had for our lives, and we think that's it, and the devil's right there to hammer on you. That's it. God can't use you anymore. You've messed up. You blew it. You got in the flesh, and that's it for you, Buster. But folks, that's never the, the truth. That's never true. Well, we know that John Mark didn't write Mark, the Gospel of Mark until much later than what we have record of him joining together with Barnabas and Saul in the first missionary journey and continuing to work with his uncle Barnabas in later years. Luke was a member of Paul's company. He certainly didn't write his gospel or the book of Acts until after Paul had been martyred. The book of John, the gospel of John wasn't written for some 30, maybe 35 years after Paul was killed by Nero. Matthew is an eyewitness account. He was one of the 12 but nobody thinks that he wrote that any earlier than about 70 A.D. 
Paul didn't even have the Gospels to go on. He didn't even have the information identified in the Gospels to work from. The first book of the New Testament that was written, according to the people that study this stuff and date things and so forth, the earliest account that was written was James, the book of James. But it's written primarily to the Jews, so that wouldn't have anything to do with Paul's ministry at all. Paul had nothing to work from, folks. Do you realize what a treasure we have in the Word of God? And when you look back to the early days of the church, we see the things that the Holy Ghost did. We see the miracles that took place. We see the revelation that was given. And it had to have been given. God had to do these things. The Holy Ghost had to move in these ways. Because the church didn't have anything else to work from. Paul was in ministry probably 30 years before he ever wrote a letter back to the churches. To be a believer in those days, you are operating with tremendous lack of knowledge, ignorance about the things of God. We see some of the things that were happening in the book of, in the uh, letters written to the Corinthians. They were the most troubled church, it seems. They had a zeal for God. They spoke with tongues, ruined their own services many times speaking in tongues. And Paul had to give correction or bring correction to show how these things were supposed to work. How are they supposed to know? We have the opportunity to look at the Bible as a guidebook for life. And I truly believe that's what it is. It's a guidebook into the plan and the purpose of God for your life. First generation of the church had nothing. Yet Jesus said himself, upon the knowledge of who he is, the Messiah, he would build the church and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. Knowing that he's dealing with flawed people, knowing he's dealing with people that have a zeal or a hunger for God on various levels, some great, some not so great. There were people, according to the book of Ephesus, the letter or the information given to us in the book of Acts about the city of, of Ephesus and the church there. There were a lot of people that were part of the Ephesian church that were just adding Jesus to the worship of every other God that they believed in. Not as the son of the most high God. Not as the one to replace every other thing in life that they were worshiping. It was just something else to worship. Until the power of the Holy Ghost was displayed to show that God was the Almighty. Revelation came in the early days of the church, particularly through Paul, in a different way that it seems to come now. Let me explain what I mean by that. We know God never changes, and part of the work of the Holy Ghost is to show us things to come. 
Part of the work of the Holy Ghost is to reveal to us who we are in Christ and what Jesus did for us. And that was the gospel that Paul received. The revelation that came to him was information that would become the Bible for us. Well, what does that mean for us? Does that mean we've already gotten all the revelation there is? Well, folks, if the Holy Ghost revealed to the church in the early days, but is not willing to reveal to us the things that we need today, then God's changed. But of course, we know that it hasn't. So revelation came to them about what would be or what should be the word of God to us. But revelation comes to us to understand what the word says. To live up to who Jesus made us to be. Paul came to understand that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away and all things have become new. He came to understand and tell us that whoever receives the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. He came to understand that. Now Paul's life was a great example of walking by faith and walking by the leading in the direction of the Holy Ghost. Who taught Paul to be led by the Holy Ghost? He didn't have Brother Hagin's books that we could read chapter by chapter. Who taught him? The Holy Ghost. I don't think it's coincidental that Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, said that he spoke with tongues or spoke in tongues more than all of them put together. Paul had a great understanding or came to a great understanding at the very least that speaking in tongues is a means of spiritual and supernatural communication with God. How did he learn? By doing it. How are we supposed to learn? By doing it. Paul wrote to the Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. He said, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family, the whole family is named, both in heaven and in earth. I'm not sure it's always helpful for us to talk about the early church versus the modern day church. Paul called us all one family. There's one church that Jesus said he'd build. There's one church that he said the gates of hell would not prevail against. Whether that family lived in the first generation, the tenth generation, or the hundredth generation of the church. We're all one family. When I look at what some of these guys did and the way they operated, the understanding that they had. Now, folks, please realize Paul's the one that teaches about authority. He's the one that tells us 
about being seated at the right hand of God, being quickened together with Jesus and seated with him in glory. He's the one that tells us that we're operating from that place of authority now. Well, do you think Paul exercised the authority that he told us we had? He lived by everything else he preached. Why not that? Yet Paul still had trouble. We certainly can't look at the life that Paul lived and the persecution that he endured and the difficulties that the devil stirred up against him. I'm talking about difficulties like shipwrecked, storms, his life being threatened by forces of nature along with people that wanted to kill him and attempted many times. Paul didn't see a conflict with having authority and exercising authority and having to contend with the hindrance of the devil. We, however, with a much greater advantage and that is the written word of God, the revelation that Paul received. We having a greater advantage think that because we can't manipulate and control the minor details of life, that maybe we really don't have authority after all like the Bible says. Folks, if that had been Paul's position, he could have never preached on authority. Ever. Paul never let his trouble affect his character. In fact, he developed character. He developed some of the attributes and characteristics of Jesus through the trouble, in the middle of the trouble that he endured. Now, folks, I'm not preaching trouble. We're going to have enough trouble whether we preach it or not. And nobody likes trouble. Nobody likes difficulties. We like it when things are going smooth. But most of the great lessons that we learn in life are in the way that we deal with and experience and handle, conduct ourselves during the middle of hard places. And I believe if, if nothing else, the example of Paul's life applies to us in exactly the same way he applied it to himself. He found himself in the Word. So should we. We should find ourselves in the Word, the Scripture, that tells us that we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but we don't feel like it. All the more reason to accept it to be true. We should find ourselves in the scripture that tells us that we've been raised and seated together with Christ as joint heirs. And that we're operating in his authority on the earth. We should find ourselves in the truth that whatever we ask the Father in his name, Jesus' name, he'll give it to us especially when it doesn't look like it's, it's working. Especially so. We should find ourselves in the Word too.
Will we be hindered? Sure. Will the devil stir up trouble against us? Of course. But just remember that his trouble is designed for one and only one purpose. And that is to make you turn loose of what the word says you are. He couldn't care less about you as an individual. Talking about the devil. The devil is not after you because of who you are in the flesh. He's after one thing. And that is separating you from God by separating you from his word. That's all he cares about. That's all he'll ever care about. Because the thing that means the most to our Heavenly Father is you and me living up to what the Bible says we are in Jesus. Exercising dominion over Satan in the earth. Making God's enemies our footstool. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. What a wonderful plan you had and carried out and are still fulfilling today to bring us into your family by recreating us, by being born again and empowering us by infilling us with the Holy Ghost. Folks, Father, it's helpful for us to see the, the inadequacies and the weaknesses of the twelve. Because they were still used of the Holy Ghost. Just like we can be. It's helpful for us to recognize that you used natural people with human frailties and weaknesses and did a supernatural work with them and through them simply because they yielded to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we yield to you too. We present ourselves as ready servants to do whatever you would have for us to do. Father, thank you for the revelation we have of who we are in Christ. Thank you for the understanding that your word gives us about being redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to know you by being joined to you. In Jesus' name. And everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Well, thank you for being here.